Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Well, thank you all for coming out. I'm Walter Lohman, director of our Asian Studies Center here at the Heritage Foundation. You know, we do so many events at Heritage, and every time I say how honored I am to introduce our guests, and I am always honored to introduce our guests because we only have the most honorable people here on the stage. Um, but I realized today I need to find a new word to describe how honored I am when I'm introducing Anson Chan because uh, truly Anson is a historic figure in, in Hong Kong. Uh, a legend, really. Um, she's also a long-term friend, long-time friend of the Heritage Foundation. Um, Anson and our founder, uh, Ed Fulder, who's sitting right here in the first row, he goes back, they go back many years in the cause of uh, Hong Kong's economic freedom and their, uh, their liberty and true adherence to the promise of the uh, one country, two systems model. Um, Anson was Chief Secretary of Hong Kong from 1993 to 2001. So if you didn't already know and you're doing your math, that puts her on either side of the handover, uh, both working for Chris Patton and for Tung Chi Wah uh, in that role. Brought a certain level of stability, I think, fair to say, and, and competence in the government at that really difficult time. And that was uh, that's a remarkable achievement in and of itself to have worked for two completely different regimes um, in, in Hong Kong. Uh, Anson was also a member of uh, LegCo, Legislative Council, um, and she's brought two members, current members of LegCo with her today, uh, Charles Mock and Dennis Kwok, and we'll talk to them a little bit later in the, in the Q&A session. Um, it's an important time to focus on Hong Kong, I think, a particularly important time. Um, the, um, the economic news is almost uniformly good that is looking at it from the from the biggest picture I don't you know I'm sure you can find a regulation or, or a problem in the Hong Kong economy at, at any given time but I mean in the big picture the uh, the story is pretty good and, and Hong Kong has been the top of our own index of economic freedom now for for 25 years uh, for that reason on the other hand there is the one country two systems and um, and where we stand with that basically the deal that Hong Kong and um, and Great Britain and, and Beijing agreed to many years ago, and that's codified, really, in, in international treaties to preserve um, autonomy for Hong Kong, a meaningful level of autonomy. Um, and the most re recent report on Hong Kong uh, by State Department is required by the Hong Kong Policy Act. State Department says that although Hong Kong maintains a degree of autonomy sufficient to justify continued separate treatment under U.S. law, that's a big part of the Hong Kong Policy Act to provide some sort of rationale for that. Uh, the Chinese central government has taken a number of actions that appear, quote, inconsistent with its international commitments. Um, 
It's also important to note, I think, in that report, as long as we're talking about some economic matters here, that the report also raises the prospect that Chinese political meddling may have begun to interfere uh, in the confidence that international business community has uh, in Hong Kong and its, and its leadership. That's a very important indicator to keep an eye on uh, because Hong Kong leads this sort of uh, double existence as a beacon of economic freedom on the one hand and on the other hand a, uh, a political system that is under some strain uh, from, from the mainland, from Beijing. So with that, let me turn it over to uh, Anson to talk to us about Hong Kong's future and a range of issues that are involved. Uh, so Anson, it truly is an honor and a pleasure again to see you and to have you here at Heritage Foundation. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Walter. Uh, thank you for welcoming us to the Heritage Foundation. As you say, I have enjoyed a very long relationship with the Heritage Foundation, dating back to the days when I was first appointed as Chief Secretary. I value that relationship, and it's a relationship that I have kept up, even though it is now coming on to 19 years since I retired from public service. And that's not just because for 25 years running, the Heritage Foundation has ranked Hong Kong as the freest economy in the world, including all 22 years after the handover. <laughs> um, I know that many of you here know Hong Kong well, and you have an understanding of its constitutional position within the People's Republic of China. But for those who may be less familiar, I'd like to open with a little bit of scene setting. The Sino-British Joint Declaration on the Question of Hong Kong was signed on 19th of December, 1984, and ratified on 27th of May, 1985, paving the way for the establishment of the Hong Kong Special Administrative Region, or SAR, of China on 1st of July, 1997. The Hong Kong SAR is governed in accordance with its own constitution, the Basic Law, which was enacted by the National People's Congress of China and promulgated by the President of China. Reflecting the unique concepts of one country, two systems, the Basic Law provides that mainland China's socialist system and policies shall not be practiced in the Hong Kong SAR, and the previous capitalist system and way of life shall remain unchanged for 50 years. The Hong Kong SAR shall enjoy a high degree of autonomy, except in matters of foreign affairs and defense, which will be the responsibility of the central people's government. Preservation of individual rights and freedoms is key to the concept of one country, two systems, which under the basic law, amongst other things, mandates the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary, provides that the current social and economic systems and lifestyle in Hong Kong will remain unchanged, safeguards fundamental rights and freedoms, including those of the person, of speech, of the press, of assembly, of association, of travel, movement, of correspondence, of strike, of choice of occupation, academic research, and religious belief, and provides for the right to vote and stand for election in fair, open elections. In the run-up to the transfer of sovereignty, there were many local Hong Kong and international cynics and doom merchants who predicted that the city's unique qualities and system of governance would not last long after 1997. And some of you old enough may recollect that Fortune magazine famously headlined the death of Hong Kong 
in the June 1996 leading article. Well, they were wrong. Hong Kong has not just survived, it has continued to thrive. Our economy has benefited hugely from closer interaction with its vast hinterland. Whilst once booming manufacturing industries, textiles and garments, toys, electronics, have moved into southern China and beyond, Hong Kong has emerged as Asia's premier connector between China and the rest of the world and provider of a wide range of banking, finance, legal, accounting, arbitration, and other trade-related services. Hong Kong is a remarkably safe city considering our population density. The overall crime rate has been in decline for the past 12 years, with the exception of online and social media scams. And our murder rate is one of the lowest in the world. Hong Kong has never been and never will be an independent sovereign entity. But it has maintained a distinct and separate status from mainland China in many aspects of its jurisdiction and external relations. For example, under the terms of the basic law, Hong Kong has its own freely convertible currency and central bank, is a free port and separate customs territory, has its own system of taxation, exercises independent immigration controls unless these touch on matters of China's foreign relations, is authorized to negotiate certain international agreements and to enter into and implement agreements with foreign states and regions and relevant international organizations in economic, trade, financial and monetary, shipping, communications, tourism, cultural and sports fields. Now, I've taken a little time to elaborate on key components of one country, two systems, because they are fundamental to the special relationship between Hong Kong and the United States. This relationship, in turn, has played a key role in Hong Kong's successful transition from British colony to special administrative region of China. It is given expression in the United States-Hong Kong Policy Act, first enacted in 1992. The provisions of the Act on which the Department of State reports annually to Congress accord Hong Kong differential treatment from that of mainland China in important aspects such as trade, commerce, and finance, export controls, visa applications, cultural, scientific, and academic exchanges, and cooperation on law enforcement, including the interception of contraband, prevention of human trafficking, and anti-terrorism. As it happens, our visit this time round has coincided with the publication of the 2018-19 report on the implementation of the U.S.-Hong Kong Policy Act by the State Department's Bureau of East Asian and Pacific Affairs. At the White House last Friday, I was privileged to meet with the Vice President and representatives of the U.S. National Security Council. It was an opportunity to express appreciation of the balanced and generally positive assessment of the current state of U.S.-Hong Kong relations in such key aspects as trade, commerce, and finance, Hong Kong's separate participation in bilateral agreements and multilateral forums, protection of U.S. citizens' interests, cooperation in sanctions and law enforcement, export controls, and academic, cultural, 
and scientific exchanges. The report's affirmation that the United States, and I quote, continues to have deep economic and cultural interests in Hong Kong, end of quote, was particularly welcome, as was the overall conclusion that despite evidence of increasing interference by China's central government in Hong Kong affairs, the degree of autonomy under the one country, two systems framework justifies continued special treatment of Hong Kong under the terms of the act. In a recent speech, the United States Consul General in Hong Kong, Kurt Tong, paid fulsome tribute both to Hong Kong's tangible assets as a key business and trading partner, namely excellent transport infrastructure, open internet, and low taxation, as well as the city's intangible assets, such as maintenance of the rule of law, a resolute determination to stamp out corruption, and protection of intellectual property rights. However, Kurt Tong also cited concerns about the central government's involvement in certain disturbing developments in 2018. These included, for the first time, the banning of a political party because it advocates independence for Hong Kong, the expulsion of a foreign journalist for hosting a lunch event at which the convener of that party was guest speaker, and the disqualification of candidates for various local elections on the basis of suspicions that they may have pro-independence leanings deemed to be in breach of the basic law. During our recent meetings with government officials and other friends of Hong Kong, my colleagues from Hong Kong's Legislative Council and I have been frank about our concerns at the progressive whittling away of Hong Kong people's basic freedoms. As put succinctly in the Hong Kong Policy Act report, and I quote, policies and practices of the mainland central government have adversely impacted Hong Kong in multiple areas, and mainland pressure has resulted in new constraints on Hong Kong's political space. In short, the latest report raises red flags to which the Hong Kong SAR government should pay full attention. It is therefore a cause of dismay that top officials in the SAR government are brushing these aside as of no serious consequence. The fact is that the withdrawal of Hong Kong's special status under the Policy Act, even if only partially at first, would be a body blow to Hong Kong's economy, international standing and perceptions that one country, two systems remains a reality. By way of example, Hong Kong's trading and logistics industries, of which import-export constitutes the major component, contribute over 20% of the territory's gross domestic product. That Hong Kong remains a trusted trading partner of the United States is vitally important not just to the large local and overseas companies and financial institutions with headquarters or regional offices in the city, but to the many thousands of small and medium-sized businesses that are the backbone of our economy and people's livelihood. Despite concerns, I want to assure you that the Hong Kong SAR government's trade policies, including export licensing, of strategic commodities and customs and excise controls 
are scrupulously enforced and backed up by increasingly sophisticated screening technology and sharing of intelligence. Given the backdrop of current intergovernmental tensions between the United States and China, prior to my arrival here in Washington, I rather fear that there may be some in the United States administration and Congress who will wonder whether Hong Kong continues to matter. Suffice to say, following our wide-ranging exchanges, my colleagues and I will return home heartened by the sincere interest in and concern for Hong Kong's future under one country, two systems, shown by all we met with. In my view, it has never been more important for the United States government to continue to support Hong Kong's freedoms and lifestyle, not only because they are crucial to America's own strategic interests, but because they are unique to China. They embody core values that we must hope can increasingly over time gain traction on the mainland. One particular issue we raised during our meetings at the White House and was our concern at the Hong Kong administration's intention to enact legislation that will provide for fugitive offenders in Hong Kong to be returned on a case-by-case basis to jurisdictions, including mainland China, that have no formal extradition rendition agreements with Hong Kong. Our concerns are shared by the European Union, by the legal profession in Hong Kong, by human rights activists and local and overseas business groups and chambers of commerce. The latter fear that the introduction of such arrangements will greatly affect confidence in Hong Kong as a safe place to do business or even just visit as a tourist. The American Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong has expressed strong reservations, pointing to the gross disparity between the Hong Kong and mainland judicial systems, including the lack of an independent judiciary, lack of fair public trial, and lack of access to legal representation. The Hong Kong administration is currently considering all views expressed. I urged all those who support one country, two systems, and who do business in Hong Kong to monitor very carefully developments on this front and to speak up before it is too late. Faithful implementation of one country, two systems matters not just to the 7.3 million people living in Hong Kong. It matters to the United States and liberal democracies everywhere. I hope that more friends of Hong Kong, whether from the administration from Congress or the corporate sector, will visit our city to understand exactly what is going on. Talk to government officials, politicians, business interests, and the average man in the street. And please, please speak up when things are not right. I'd like to close on perhaps a rather more personal note. My family moved to Hong Kong when I was just eight years old. Hong Kong has been my only home ever since, and I have been proud and privileged to be able to serve my community in senior roles in the Hong Kong administration, both before and after the return of sovereignty in 1997. Since retiring, I have devoted the past 18 years campaigning publicly 
for the election of Hong Kong's head of government and legislature by universal suffrage, something that has been long promised to Hong Kong people in the basic law, but still depressingly out of reach. Democratic governance, despite its many imperfections, is, in my view, ultimately the only means of ensuring that those in authority are accountable to those they govern. Failure to implement this has contributed fundamentally to the polarization of Hong Kong society that culminated in the 2014 occupation of the streets by the so-called umbrella movement. The central government and Hong Kong's SAR government regularly stress the importance of social harmony. But governments cannot mandate social harmony. It can only be achieved through policies that are just and inclusive, policies that respect the needs and wishes of the majority, and not just vested interests and privileged elites. The more a government attempts to suppress dissent and ride roughshod over sincerely held views and opinions, the more those being suppressed will push back. In Hong Kong, we are blessed with young political activists who have fire in their belly and the courage to stand up and be counted. In their fight for a decent future, they need every support, not least a staunch commitment to the maintenance of one country, two systems, and the values that it embodies. The Heritage Foundation has an unsurpassed record of endorsement for the economic philosophy that has underpinned Hong Kong's success as a global business hub. And we look forward to your continuing support as the city faces up to the challenges ahead. Thank you. Thank you very much, Anson. That was, that was terrific. I look forward to digging into some of those issues that you raised a little bit more. Um, as I mentioned uh, in my introduction, um, Anson has brought a couple of her friends with her from LegCo, two serving members um, in the Legislative Council. Um, Dennis is a member, founding member, actually, of the Civic Party, and he represents a legal functional constituency. He's been a member since 2012, I think. Um, and Charles uh, represents the Information Technology functional constituency, an area where he's had 20 years of experience up, up until now. More than. Yeah. Well, doesn't look like you're old enough to have much more. <laughs> much but, more. Uh, I guess so. Um, well, with that, let me uh, turn it over to – I want to turn it over to questions and answers. I've got a couple questions, but first of all, I just wanted to ask uh, our other guests if they had any reaction to Anson's remarks. I want to welcome anything that you may have to say. Um, well, again, thank you, Heritage Foundation. Uh, this is, I think, my third time here. Uh, and every time I, I, we, we have such a quality uh, audience and uh, it's a very important platform uh, for our this uh, US, U.S. trip this time. Uh, I just want to say a few words uh, in addition to what Anson just said about the rule of law in Hong Kong. Now, let me just say, uh, first and foremost, that um, the rule of law in Hong Kong is still strong. It is strong because we have an independent judiciary. No question about that. Our judiciary is fiercely independent. And the, the lawyers uh, that I represent uh, in Hong Kong, they are adamant uh, in preserving the common law tradition. Uh, 
that we still have in Hong Kong. Uh, as the representative of the legal profession, I'm proud to say that most of my constituents are absolutely uh, clear about how important an independent judiciary and uh, an independent and professional legal profession is to Hong Kong. Now, having said that, um, the challenges to the rule of law in Hong Kong are external. And by external, I mean that they are outside of the legal profession or the judiciary in terms of the government's decision to of disqualifying candidates based on their political views to the expulsion of a foreign journalist, uh, the FT uh, editor, Victor Marlet, to uh, the most recent uh, proposal to um, allow for extradition of uh, individuals to mainland China to face a broad range of uh, crimes from murder to rape to uh, economic crimes such as tax evasion. Now, the business community have, uh, I mean, especially the international business community in Hong Kong have, I think, purposely avoided uh, in commenting or coming out on what they see as political issue. But this time, uh, on the extradition, uh, you see that local businesses, even local businesses who are usually very uh, pro government and pro-Beijing, they have come out and say, hang on a minute, this is uh, something seriously wrong with this proposal. Have you thought it through? Because those of us who have been doing business in China uh, will have a some issues in the past regarding whether it is tax evasion or whether it is some issues with authorities uh, that they were afraid that all these will now come back and haunt them in the terms of uh, a request for extradition. Now, the international community is, of course, uh, uh, concerned because that means any American businessmen who are residing in Hong Kong or who simply passes through Hong Kong can be arrested by the authorities and be extradited to uh, China to face criminal trial. Now, this is impact on several uh, levels. One is the bilateral agreements on an international level between uh, countries such as the U.S. and Hong Kong will have to be reviewed because you will be extraditing people to Hong Kong who would then risk extradition to uh, mainland China to face criminal trial. Now, let's not beat around the bush. We know what the criminal justice system is like in China. They could lock you up from three, five to seven years without trial. There's no independence of judiciary. That is something that is openly admitted by uh, the central people's government, and there's no respect for human rights and due process. Are we comfortable in sending people, whether it is our own citizens or foreign nationals, to face trial in such a system? What sort of guarantee can the central people's government uh, or the mainland government give that these people will receive fair trial or trial even within a reasonable time or that no additional charges will be slapped on them after they've been transported to mainland China. What can the Hong Kong government do if such things happen? Nothing is the answer, because if they do uh, slap extra charges on somebody or do not start the trial within a reasonable time, is the Hong Kong government realistically really going to ask for that person back uh, from mainland? Hardly. So these are real concerns that I think uh, we should uh, really focus on. And uh, in our meetings with uh, people in the State Department, in the White House, and later on today and tomorrow in Congress, we will be speaking about this issue. And I just want to uh, um, say that we, we know there are a lot of people now who uh, really look into Hong Kong issues. I think that is a good development, that um, Hong Kong, um, I think, 
has dropped off the radar somewhat in the past 20 years. But now people are, are coming back and pay attention to Hong Kong. And um, I think that is a positive development. And I encourage more uh, congressional delegation to come to Hong Kong and think tanks and NGOs to come to Hong Kong and look at Hong Kong issues. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad you said that because that's certainly, that's certainly true. That is that Hong Kong is increasingly on radar screens here in Washington. I think after some long period where it had dropped off, and maybe not for the wrong reasons. Things were going okay, maybe, you know. And so in recent years, um, things have been going uh, less well. I think you've seen Congress and others in Washington begin to pay closer attention. And, and also, I think, as the nature of the regime in Beijing has become a little bit clearer in certain respects. Um, Charles, is there something you want to add? Yes. yes. Uh, first of all, thanks to the Hersey Foundation for giving us this opportunity. It's a great honor. And uh, I uh, would really like to bring your attention to some of the issues around technology development, especially in the context background that, uh, as you all know, the, uh, technology is no doubt one of the key issues behind the uh, trade war between the U.S. and China. Uh, I represent the IT, Information Technology Functional Constituency, in Hong Kong. And uh, I actually represent a big portion of, or actually a significant portion of the people I represent, companies that I represent, are actually American companies. You know, American companies actually have a long tradition and presence in Hong Kong. You know, those big vendors, IBM, HP, Microsoft, and so on. Even the newer comers like Facebook, Google, Amazon, and so on. So uh, it is a very important part of our business sector in Hong Kong. And uh, one fact that you might not know, actually, uh, America actually ranks number two in terms of the number of non-local uh, entrepreneur startups in Hong Kong uh, behind the UK and ahead of mainland China. Uh, at 15.5% uh, of our entrepreneurs, foreign entrepreneurs in Hong Kong, non-local entrepreneurs in Hong Kong, actually, are Americans. No doubt they are attracted by the opportunities in uh, fintech and uh, maybe proximity to Shenzhen to do a lot of these uh, electronic prototyping. But uh, it's a testament to say that these uh, businesses are very important for Hong Kong's economy, not to mention many of these newer infrastructure developments, including... Uh, our government like to talk about it all the time, you know, the investment by uh, Facebook and Telstra and, and a Chinese partner in building the first underseas cable between the mainland U.S., the West Coast, to directly to Hong Kong. Now, these are all the good stuff, all the cooperation between the U.S. and, uh, and Hong Kong. But uh, having said this, uh, we are also happy that at least up to now, in Hong Kong, we do have the, a lot of these qualities that uh, China doesn't have yet, including a free internet without censorship, strong intellectual property and copyright protection, and uh, judicial independence and rule of laws that allows many of these businesses to be comfortable in operating in Hong Kong. Now, uh, these are all important reasons for us to preserve the conditions in Hong Kong for our mutual benefit. In recent years, our uh, special administrative region government has uh, actually put in a lot of uh, investment into technology. It has uh, uh, invested or at least earmarked over 100 billion Hong Kong dollars, which is something like 13 billion US dollars, in uh, de developing our infrastructure, our R&D, and so on. 
uh, a significant part of that actually goes toward uh, building clusters of R&D, including in artificial intelligence, robotics, and uh, biomedical science. And we know that a number of U.S. institutions within the next year or two will be building up R&D centers in Hong Kong, including MIT, Harvard, Johns Hopkins, and the likes. Now, it is also, I think I have to bring your attention to the uh, Greater Bay Area development that the central government is, has been planning. Uh, in the planning document uh, released by the central government in the February, uh, the nine cities on the China side, plus Hong Kong and Macau, the two special administrative regions, uh, the, the uh, central government's idea is to develop it into China's or the world's next Silicon Valley, maybe even better and bigger than Silicon Valley. Uh, and Hong Kong's role, in addition to continuing to be the financial services center, we're supposed to be also uh, providing the R&D and some of the manpowers that's needed for these development. Now, the proponents of the Greater Bay Area initiatives tell us that this, that this will mean a bigger and better market access and, uh, and uh, various other policies and transportation improvements that will make it easier for people to work in the mainland. But uh, there are doubters who worry that such a, such a new arrangement will need to bigger brain drain from Hong Kong and further loss of Hong Kong's autonomy and our own brand and image. Now, uh, we know that we are, all, we are uh, for more than 20 year, 22 years, uh, being ranked by the Heritage Foundation as the freest economy of the world. But uh, uh, it, it sometimes baffles me to, to, to think why our government, which uh, treasure this ranking so much, but at the same time is so welcoming to this planned economy uh, sort of uh, arrangement by the central government. Uh, there's, in my mind, some certain level of conflicts uh, in this area. Now, uh, of course, this Great Bay Area can hardly, in my view, be directly compared to something like Silicon Valley because you wouldn't have to go from San Jose to San Francisco and find that you're suddenly behind a firewall. Uh, that that wouldn't happen. So uh, I, I think... It's important for us that uh, as we developed, as the, our government wants to develop into this direction, we also have to make sure that Hong Kong doesn't just become another mainland Chinese city. We will continue to be genuinely Asia's world city. Now, this I just want to also quickly comment on the uh, 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 the fact that uh, late last year, when the report of the USCC, the US China Commission. Uh, mentioned the recommendation of examining and assessing the adequacy of U.S. export control policies for dual-use technology as it relates to the U.S. treatment, U.S. treatment of Hong Kong and China as separate customs area. It really got the attention of a lot of Hong Kong people. Uh, Hong Kong as a separate customs area and the potential sanctions on the U.S. dual-use technologies export to Hong Kong. Now, currently, Hong Kong can obtain all these so-called sensitive technology under U.S. export control as long as these technologies are guaranteed not to be used or exported inappropriately. Now, this, these, these items actually covers a whole wide range of areas, not just military stuff. It also includes uh, nuclear or chemical or bio, uh, microbiological materials as well as computers, information tech, uh, security, and telecom systems, and so on. 
So we in the legislatures are certainly trying to do our part in questioning and holding our government responsible in its uh, international compliance to these export controls as well as sanctions uh, enforcement. But uh, I think even the U.S. Hong Kong Policy Act recently did acknowledge our government's efforts in cooperating and trying to do uh, trying to enforce these export control. Now, uh, uh, in 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 the cases that, uh, but I have to say that indeed, already over the years, we have seen a number of cases of tightening of some of these ex- uh, technology export to Hong Kong. In cases that I have come across, uh, such tightening of controls simply push some of these legitimate research or business activities to turn to Chinese suppliers. So I think there must be a balance that uh, American uh, and, uh, or the government must consider in these in these areas. So uh, I just want to highlight these aspects and uh, make sure that at while we are trying to highlight and uh, shine, as Ensign said, shine the night on some of these issues that are facing Hong Kong in our rule of law, in our one country, two systems uh, situation. We also want to make sure that uh, we want to strike the right balance. Uh, thank you very much, Charles. Um, you know, it's interesting your, your uh, reference to this, uh, the new plan uh, for basically Silicon Valley of, of China and that I think these proposals sometimes, and I think the general economic threat that is perceived here in Washington now often lacks the courage of our own conviction on free markets. That is, we all believe, especially at Heritage, we do this index for 25 years, we all believe that economic freedom, free markets actually is the best way to go. But for some reason, we're all scared that the Chinese are going to do all the opposite things and still take over the world. So I think the same sort of thing goes for um, – goes for centrally planned innovation, probably is not going to work. Mm. You know, mm. you have to bring in some innovators in order to do, do that, and then you have to put them in a sort of ecosystem that will support innovation. And I think we need to have a little bit more courage of our own convictions and our own economic model when we're thinking about, thinking about China. Um, I wanted to open it up to, to questions. If you need uh, a little bit of time to think, I have a couple, a couple here myself. Um, you know, I, I wanted to come back to Anson for a minute and, and ask her, um, you, you had some direct experience with chief executives, and you've watched the role of the chief executive office uh, evolve over time. Um, I was struck most during the last go-around on suffrage. I was struck most how the chief executive did not appear to see his job as representing the people of Hong Kong in conversation or interaction with the central authorities in Beijing. He seemed to believe his role was mostly carrying out the directives or otherwise if he needed to ignore them or go about Hong Kong's business, but not representing the people of Hong Kong in Beijing. Um, am I, first of all, am I right about that? And secondly, is the job of chief executive evolving still? Um, I, I think, first of all, um, I don't underestimate the difficulties facing any chief executive in the SAR government uh, because it involves a very difficult balancing act. Uh, put very starkly, uh, 
to earn the trust, respect, and support of the uh, people in Hong Kong, you have to be seen in our eyes as Hong Kong's chief executive, i.e. you stand by um, one country, two systems, you share our values, and you do your level best to protect those values. But in Beijing, in order to earn their trust, I think you have to veer somewhat to the other side and be seen by Beijing authorities as their chief executive. So where does the balance lie? Okay, um, And I think uh, our disappointment so far, uh, but maybe it's still early days, although it is already halfway through Mrs. Lam's uh, first term of office, we have not yet seen a commitment on her part to defend one country, two systems, particularly our lifestyle and our core values. Uh, and the impression, as has been pointed out, not only in the latest report on the uh, uh, Hong Kong Policy Act, but in other reports, the increasing perception is that she carries out the bidding of uh, the um, uh, central government. Uh, I think the reality is it's not quite so simple. We in Hong Kong would like to see her standing up for our values, helping us at least, because she is the main bridge between Hong Kong and central government. And to the extent that central government does not understand what makes Hong Kong tick, what we value most, uh, and what concerns us, we expect her to be able to reflect our views faithfully to Beijing. We have not yet seen very much evidence of that. Um, Charles, I wanted to go back to you for a second because in, in an interesting way, sector you've been involved with for 20 years and now represented, LegCo, is really at the nexus between economic issues and political issues. Because, because, even security. Right, because the free flow of information is so important to so many sectors of the economy. Personal information, which can also be political, financial information, which can be political, the way it's stored, uh, all the regulations around it. How do you see those things playing out uh, between Hong Kong and, and Beijing? Well, I, I, I didn't go into too much uh, earlier on about the Greater Bay Area Initiative other than saying that, you know, the, the issue about free economy versus a planned economy aspect of it. But uh, in fact, uh, with the Greater Bay Area Initiative, there is one other area of uh, potential concern because there will be a lot more of the interaction between these two areas because there will be a lot more uh, joint, let's say, R&D activities. And I did mention that one of those areas would be artificial intelligence. And then we will be looking at a lot of these cross-border big data uh, potential development, uh, data analytics cross-border data uh, transfers, and so on. Now, these are actually quite sensitive. On the one hand, uh, we do look at this as a joint market. Great. Hong Kong people can open up bank accounts in the in the Greater Bay Area, in the mainland area, much easier, uh, more, more easily, or and vice versa. But think about the transfer of, transfer of information and the infrastructure that and, and the rules that will take, that will be, uh, applied at the at the time, are we going to use Hong Kong's laws or are we going to be using uh, China's laws? Uh, there's going to be a more of a blurred uh, 
line between China and Hong Kong, uh, especially when it comes to some of these regulations and some of these laws that will be applied when we, when, as we develop this Greater Bay Area. So I think, uh, this is one area that I would think that, uh, uh, technology is neutral, but we will be caught in between. Now, how do we find the balance? How do we make sure that we continue to have Hong Kong, uh, in such a way that we will have the respect and the confidence of the international business community. Uh, while at the same time, great, if we can explore more business opportunities. But how do we in the end protect the people, particularly, or, or businesses, particularly when we talk about many of these financial transactions that might have uh, great uh, sensitivities? Right. Okay, thank you. Um, the um, Dennis, you talked a little bit about Victor Mallet and his uh, travails um, and, and what that meant for Hong Kong. Generally, how do you, because I hear commentary on this all the time in, in passing, that is on the state of um, press freedoms in, in Hong Kong and the development of uh, journalism there and, and some of the flagship publications where they may be headed or, or, or that sort of thing. So how do you um, judge the state of of the press and, and press freedoms in uh, Hong Kong today, and and is it healthy? Where is it headed? I think there's a lot of self censorship going around in the Hong Kong media. Um, when most of the major newspapers, bar one, are owned by pro uh, Beijing uh, business uh, owners. Um, you know, one one example people always talk about is Alibaba. Uh, Jack Ma bought uh, SCMP. Now, I'm not saying SCMP is now a, a, a pro Beijing, you know, totally left wing uh, newspaper, uh, but you can see in all the editorials of most major newspapers uh, where they are uh, slanted politically. And the worst example is TVB. Uh, in my humble opinion, I think. Uh, you know, growing up as uh, in Hong Kong, you, you always look for TV, TVB news as, uh, you know, a, a credible, reliable uh, 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 source of uh, news. But nowadays, I, I feel their reporting is, uh, is not as uh, uh, straightforward as before and is always slanted to a particular direction. That is, in my opinion, the state of the, one of the major news broadcasters in, uh, in Hong Kong. Now, um, I think there are still some elements of independence in the media today, especially uh, for the frontline uh, reporters uh, that we deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. But um, their stories, once filed, uh, gets edited and turned around in a, uh, into a different style that their editors like. So that is the, the, the state of the media, um, as I would describe it in Hong Kong. Can I, can yes, I add please. a word? Um, I think that the, the, the one of the greatest constraints on the free press is <clears throat> the muscle power of uh, uh, central government in Hong Kong uh, through a variety of means, uh, inducements, intimidation, uh, the hounding of uh, independent journalists. And when you staff newspapers, for example, of their main source of income, which is through advertisement, hmm, there are not many proprietors with deep enough pockets who can survive. Hmm. I think this is our real worry. The other indication is um, when it comes to uh, organizations like Reporters Without Borders and others deciding where they're going to locate their Asian Bureau, Hong Kong used to be uh, first choice. Now, 
Reporters Without Borders have decided to locate their Asian bureau in Taiwan. So that says a great deal. And I can assure you that the Victor Mallet case certainly does not help improve <laughs> matters. I want to also uh, add a word about the relations between the freedom of the traditional media and the new media. Because as you all know, you know, many people do these days, they do not get their news directly from the media, but probably indirectly or uh, through social media and other internet means. Uh, we still, Hong Kong's we still enjoy a free and open internet, no censorship, no filtering, and we hope that we can uh, keep it that way. But uh, the uh, the fact is that uh, even there, uh, I do see that, uh, for example, traditional, uh, no, uh, for example, the uh, uh, pro-government or pro-establishment political parties I've heard is going to be spending, planning to spend millions of dollars in online advertising in the Facebook advertising or the, or the likes to try to influence or to try to uh, influence elections in future. Uh, there are already, we notice in the uh, opposition camp that every election, there are uh, a lot of these uh, in Chinese so-called 50 cents gangs of people who are coming out and uh, saying slanted things in uh, and, uh, and sharing, uh, I don't know, fake news or... Uh, uh, of uh, information of that nature to try to influence the uh, election. This this is a real threat at the same time to try to discredit uh, 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 the uh, political opponents uh, against the establishment in the new media. And I do worry that this is also going to be a trend. You know, I think um, I think Will Rogers is the one who said that uh, Congress only has two reactions: one, it goes fishing, or it goes crazy. So uh, either you get their attention on something and they completely overreact or they just don't care about it much. And, um, you know, as I've watched the way the town has dealt with uh, Hong Kong over the years, uh, your problem is somewhere in there. Because in so many senses, we just listened to the, the presentations today, your case is not dramatic enough. I mean, as much as it matters to you and it matters to us, it matters to you more than us, but as much as it matters... It's not dramatic enough, and there's some nuance to it. You talk about the independent judiciary and the fact that the media is not um, being being censored, and that there's self-censorship in some cases, or the ownership structure, or the structure of universal suffrage, or the eventuality of suffrage. All mm. these things are very complicated and nuanced, yeah. and it's hard to get attention in Washington that way. And so uh, and comment on that however you'd like, but uh, but the question I have for you related is, as you go around town and you're talking to members of Congress or, and others, what are the things that seem to pick up their ears, things that, that you say that catch their attention and seem to be something that maybe we can build on in terms of uh, concern over some real issues that will affect Hong Kong's future? I have a go at that. Um, the, the situation in mainland China um, I think, Walter, you mentioned that we are having this competition between the two systems. The two systems that one represents people who believe in uh, authoritarianism or the, uh, planned economy, uh, and the other system where people still believe in freedom, democracy, and rule of law. And as a politician in Hong Kong, we see that tension or competition between the two systems every day. Every bit of news, every political event is something to do with that tension. 
Now, I'm a firm believer in the rule of law, freedom, and democracy. I believe that system is ultimately far better than an authoritarian system. Um, the attention that we've been getting is that, for example, take international religious freedom uh, as an issue. Religious freedom uh, is still protected in Hong Kong. The fact that half a million of Christians, Catholics, and Muslims and and other uh, faiths can practice their religion openly and safely without fear of persecution is a fact in Hong Kong. But whereas 35 minutes from central across the border, that is not the case. And we're seeing the situation getting worse and worse, that uh, persecution of Christians, uh, they took down over 2,000 churches in uh, Xijiang province alone in the past five years. And uh, house churches are being uh, uh, closed down and people are being arrested for being a pastor, unregistered. And, um, and we all know what's happening in Xinjiang. Okay, So um, the level of repression is so high that it becomes, Hong Kong becomes, becomes much more precious in that sense because Hong Kong is the only place in the whole of China where people can practice their, their faith openly. Hong Kong is the only place where people can commemorate the June 4th uh, Tiananmen Massacre. And this year is, of course, the 30th anniversary. It is still the only place where people can do that. And it makes it all the more precious that if we do care about freedom, democracy, and rule of law, and we believe that system is ultimately better, then you should and must care about Hong Kong because we are at the forefront of that battlefield. I also, well, actually, I think Walter brought up a very good point. But uh, other than in addition to for us to say, you know, what are the issues that are, that we can bring up to get the attention of the American stakeholders of government officials and so on? Maybe I, I really think that with due respect, uh, the American side needs to start to think differently also and not let an authoritarian regime like China or maybe even other authoritarian regimes in the world do this kind of things of slowly changing the status quo, slowly enough complicate in such a complicated way enough that all of you would ignore it until it's too late. And I think I've been making some of these comments to my friends, uh, in, uh, Western friends for many years. I was saying that, you know, be careful, you know, uh, authoritarian governments like China are selling their form of governance to all your partners around the world. It's not just Hong Kong. I mean, all, all your partners around the world. And, uh, and, and lo and, lo and behold, they come up with all these, uh, Belt and Roads and other initiatives to dress everything lightly uh, to achieve that goal. So I think uh, I, I'm recently even using the example. I mean, don't underestimate the kind of efforts that they're spending even in Taiwan. I mean, what if in the next election next year in Taiwan, a more pro-Beijing regime will get elected and then they would come back to, the, to Washington and say, thank you very much. We don't need you anymore after all these years. You know, that can happen. So uh, it's not just how we can bring up the issues to make people here understand the important, but it's also, I think, in some ways a challenge to this, to the Western thinking in terms of understanding, you know, how to look deeper than the surface and not make the mistakes that maybe had been made before. I think, I think America should should look closely at how Hong Kong is being treated by um, Beijing. 
despite all the assurances and promises laid down in the joint declaration that they signed with uh, Britain and in our own constitution, the uh, basic law. Uh, I hope that there is a growing realization in this country that fundamentally at issue is a basic clash of ideology and values. And if America continues to embrace liberal values, then you need to consider what are the best ways of holding fast to those values. And Hong Kong represents one of the places where we are trying to hold on to these values. We're trying to hold China to the promises that they made. And America should be asking themselves, if China is allowed to walk away with impunity on taking away the freedoms that they promise, then can their word be trusted? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and I, I absolutely agree with the idea that um, just because we have uh, short attention spans and, uh, and uh, it's difficult to um, make an impact sometimes in Washington doesn't absolve us of a responsibility to focus on those things. Um, I mean, that's why Heritage Foundation exists and, and, uh, and many other similar organizations in town. That's why we focus on Hong Kong. Is, uh, we're trying to keep a spotlight on 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 Hong Kong ourselves, um, but um, but it does get difficult sometimes. I mean, you talk about the um, the struggle between the two different systems, and that we m- may wake up one day to see that the Chinese uh, model in ascendance. Uh, you can already see parts of that, and 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 honestly, you see it more on the economic side than anything. You have in Washington now. Very, people who were very, very recently free traders now talking about industrial policy and creating, uh, you know, more protection for American business and that sort of thing, really adopting a Chinese style of, of uh, economic development in the cause of combating China's economic model, which, uh, which you know, we'll lose in the end anyway if we take that approach. So I, I, think, I think you're absolutely right. We have a responsibility ourselves uh, to do something. And, and as long as Heritage Foundation is here, we will be doing that on many issues, a vast array of issues, but including including Hong Kong. Um, we're about to, to wrap up, but I wanted to leave uh, leave last word to uh, any of our guests. Uh, Walter, I think in terms of that responsibility, you're not alone. I mean, America is not alone. You have partners around the world, people who believe in the same value system. And if you ask... Uh, a Chinese businessman or uh, someone who has the option of living in an authoritarian country like China or choosing to live in any parts of uh, Western democratic nation, that person, if he's honest with you, he would 100% choose to live in a country like America. There's a reason why Ms. Meng has two houses in Vancouver and not uh, uh, you know that his kids, her kids are, are are there, and a lot of Chinese businessmen uh, know and try to take money away. And there's a reason. Given the choice, no one would live in an authoritarian uh, system or country if he or she has a choice. And that is the choice that the world has to make. I uh, uh, I just want to make uh, repeat one point that uh, I. 
since I've been here, I've been talking to uh, many of the officials and people we meet in the government and so on, is that uh, while we bring your attention to all these issues that we're facing in terms of our democratic future, in terms of our human rights and so on in Hong Kong, at the same time, I think uh, we want your engagement, continued engagement and support for Hong Kong uh, and not isolate us uh, in terms of uh, economics, in terms of technology and so on. Because uh, there will be, again, more people in the uh, uh, in Hong Kong or in China that will be ha very happy to see this happen. It will push us toward further integration into the system of China. And in the end, uh, then it will it will be a loss of this particular, you know, freest economy in the world. It will be gone forever. And I don't think that is to the advantage of either the people of Hong Kong, the people in China, the people in the U.S., or even Asia, Asia or the world as a whole. So I, I, I do think that, uh, I do hope that uh, policymakers can make take a more uh, holistic and longer-term view in doing the right thing in, on balance taking a look at all these infringement violations and the and and the stuff that we talked about in terms of damages to the rule of law and human rights but at the same time uh figuring out how to continue to engage us uh and uh and and and, and so on uh, don't 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 just wait for another umbrella movement <laughs> just just keep you know keep shining a light on uh, hong kong and i suggest that maybe at the heritage foundation in addition to the economic freedom index that you do every year that you might consider doing specific studies on specific areas that that impinge on values that we both share just focus attention, let's say, the health of the rule of law or press freedom or some such other things and engage Hong Kong people. Yeah. Thank you with that. Please Thank join you. me in uh, thanking our guests. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad too. We'll see you next time. Yeah.